I guess there was a sense of frustration that what I had this idealistic view of how I was going to serve people at, when they had their greatest need. I've had this huge sense that I couldn't achieve what I wanted to achieve. Purpose Deep Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposey with Francis Benj. Francis is the CEO of Cure Kids, a research charity focused on and extending and improving the lives of children living in New Zealand. Francis, a respected leader, provides a candid and honest account of her move from the corporate world to CEO of a non-profit and how her extensive experience in the pharmaceutical industry made her the ideal candidate to lead Cure Kids. Anyone listening to this podcast and you enjoy it, could I ask you whether you're on Apple Podcasts, whether you're on Spotify, whatever platform you're on, if you could hit follow, it really helps me get the message out there. Enjoy the episode. Francis Benj, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thank you, Mark. You're the Chief Executive of Cure Kids. What's its mission? What's its purpose? So Cure Kids is 51 years old this year. And 51 years ago, two incredibly aspirational paediatricians set up Cure Kids at what was then called the Child Health Research Foundation. And uh, their vision was that they could see that New Zealand child health statistics were really low compared to other resource-rich countries. And we were, our health rankings were really slipping in terms of the OECD rankings. And they felt that the only way to reverse this trend was by investing in dedicated pediatric research programs. So in those days, the only research that was really done on child health was, was done on adults. And that doesn't necessarily translate into, um, child, the, what was happening at a, at a childhood level. So they established the National Child Health Research Foundation with a grant from Rotary. So, um, and established our first, very first professorial chair as a paediatric dedicated researcher. And so our bold vision is that we will have healthier children with brighter futures. But the way that we're doing that is by investing in the research, which is going to transform the health of our tamariki. I love some of the statements on your website. So big research for little lives, which I think is a really awesome strap line. Um, but we face some significant challenges in New Zealand. We're at the bottom of the, the world. We have some unique challenges, I guess, and that particularly relates to, to health. What do you see the sort of state of the nation and what issues are you, you know, most focused on at Cure Kids? Yeah, Mark, you make a really important point because, you know, one of the things people often say is why can't we just do research overseas and translate it into New Zealand child health? But the reality is, is we have some incredibly unique and frankly quite shameful health statistics. So we've got an incredible incidence of rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease and our Māori and Pacific Island populations are particularly affected by this. Pacific Island children are 140 times more likely to uh, contract rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease than their European counterparts. So rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease, it's a third world disease. And yet here we are, this beautiful resource-rich country, and our children are still terribly impacted by this disease. 
Yeah, that is shocking because that, like you say, it's a, it's a third world issue, but it affects a portion a number of young people, children in New Zealand. And that's, and that's linked to poverty and it's linked to the types of housing. You know, it's, it's a bit unique to New Zealand in terms of being a developed country. Yes, absolutely, it is, and uh, and so we, you know a big part of figuring out why that is 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 through research. We don't actually know why specific populations are more vulnerable to uh, rheumatic heart disease than others. I mean, a child in in Remuera, for example, might end up with a strep throat, but they don't necessarily end up with rheumatic fever. Whereas five kilometres down the road, a child might end up with a strep throat and will end up with the long-term chronic implications and heart damage of rheumatic heart disease. So we need to figure that out right from why are these, why are these children more vulnerable? Uh, how can we treat them? How, what are the preventative measures? Uh, what are the, you know, is there, a, a, you know, what vaccines can we use? And then if they do contract, rheumatic heart disease, how can we prevent them from those really terrible long-term implications? And your role is focused on raising money and then connecting it to good research. Tell us about a bit about the mechanics of that. And, and is, is research difficult to raise money for? And you know, how do you get on? So you, ma- you made a good point earlier on, Mark, when you talked about our tagline, Big Research for Little Lives. And I think that's our way of communicating something quite complex. So this research is big and it's complicated and it's hard to understand. So how do we translate that for the the general public to say, we need to do a research project on, we need to figure out why these little children are being admitted to hospital with common conditions. So why, why is that happening? So we need to understand the why before we can provide the solutions, and that's where where research comes in. Uh, we've got an incredible. New Zealanders are incredibly generous and very humbly philanthropic. So we've got everything from fundraising, everything from our amazing corporate partners like Briscoes, who effectively do our street. Um, collection for us so you know when you go in and you buy your toaster and somebody says to you you know would you like to you know add a little bit more for cure kids then you know they ask the question which is fantastic so Briscoe's is our largest corporate partner so we have everything from corporate partnerships to we've got a, a strong group of people who give regularly to cure kids uh, we've got uh, people who might come to us and say, you know, I've had a granddaughter who passed away from leukemia or sudden unexpected death in infancy. And so I would really like to make a donation to go specifically to that sort of research. We've got people who might leave a bequest in their, a gift in their will to say, I'd like, the, you know, part of my estate to go towards a research project on this area of child health. So we've got all of these incredible people who fundraise and fund us. And as I said at the beginning, you know, we're the largest funder of research purely through New Zealand's generosity. And it's one of the challenges with research and funding is that not all research works and there's also quite a long uh, horizon on it often. Is that one of the challenges? It is one of the challenges because, you know, it's like anything, you know, these incredible scientists have these, you know, brilliant ideas and they think, ah, you know, this could be the, 
the answer and so they'll come up with a hypothesis and sometimes the hypothesis might um, take them down a completely different path. And I think when you, a good example of that is when you look at our research into what used to be called cot death or sudden unexpected death in infancy, the reduction in babies dying of SUDI has reduced dramatically, but that's been as a result of 25 years of research. So it's, you know, so there have been a number of different programs of research looking at at all of the different causes of, you know, why babies die in their sleep. And it's as a result of that huge program of research. And sometimes, you know, going down a couple of, you know, wrong lines of research, but then pulling back. Or oh, quite unique discoveries. Recently, we funded some research looking at rheumatic heart disease. And while we were looking at things like strep throat and uh, the causes the inflammatory response to strep throat, one of the things that came out of that research was, which was completely unexpected, was that children who were more vulnerable to rheumatic fever um, had a, a greater, I don't know whether you'd call it incidence, but had a higher intake of sweet, sugary drinks. So that was a discovery that the research certainly did set out to find, but that was something that was almost an accidental discovery. And obviously more research will need to be done on that because, you know, it may have been coincidental, for example. In terms of changing tact and looking back at your past, and, and I want to take you on a journey right through your experience through the pharmaceutical trade, but looking back at your childhood and connecting it to today as a leader of a non-profit and a, and a children-focused charity, is there anything that points to, from your childhood around what you do today? Like when you look back and think, actually, the way I was brought up, I was always going to have a, a sort of for-purpose focused career? Look, it's a really good question, and I think it, you know there are a number of you know life experiences that have that have driven where I am today. And uh, one of them was you know at school having a passion for biology and learning about the body and and uh, learning about health and just loved all of that. Was a total geek at biology at school, and then thinking, well, as a young girl, you know, how do I how do I where do I take that? And of course, in those days, you know, the, the career options were sort of teaching, secretarial or nursing. And, uh, and then I had quite a poignant experience when I was in my late teens where my grandfather had heart disease. And I remember visiting him in hospital and we were very close. And I remember th having this real compulsion that I wanted to do something that would make a difference to, um, to his life. And, you know, how can, how can I influence that? So I, I started off, um, uh, on a, on the nursing journey and absolutely loved that. Just really enjoyed the whole health aspect, the caring side. I'd have came from a very caring family. I had wonderful parents who were caring. And that whole thought process around making people comfortable when they're feeling, when they're at their most vulnerable and tying that into science and, and the body and understanding how a healthy body works. Um, and then I guess as life goes on, I was about to get married and thinking, gosh, you know, all of this shift work, not so good at, for a work-life balance. And I uh, thought, oh, actually, it'd be quite good to have a job with regular hours, but still in the health sector. And then serendipitously, 
a job in the pharmaceutical industry came up and I thought, well, I'll do that for a, a little while. And then I, I, my career in the pharmaceutical industry spanned, you know, over 25 years. So, you know, absolutely loved the science, uh, was a good salesperson. So started out as a role in sales, loved connecting with the medical community, talking to them about pharmaceuticals and how they can help GPs and help uh, specialists have better outcomes for their patients through, you know, good use of of well-researched pharmaceuticals. And I guess that also evolved into leadership roles in the pharmaceutical industry and was fortunate to, or had the privilege of the position of country manager for Pfizer New Zealand and then uh, moved to Hong Kong and the Emerging Markets Asia Cluster role and absolutely loved that. And that translated into, um, you know, improving the lives of health in not only in New Zealand, but also in, in Southeast Asia as well. And just thoroughly enjoyed that role. Um, and then as my own children started to get older, I thought, actually, it's probably time to come back to New Zealand because they'll start their travelling journey. And I felt I needed to, I had a compulsion, I suppose you could say, to come back for my family, but also actually still had this hunger to make a difference to the health and lives of New Zealand. And our children are where you're going to make the biggest impact. Yeah, agreed. And you as a child, so you talked about being a really good student and and being focused, really focused on biology. Were you a confident child as well? Were you a confident teenager? Could you see that sort of leadership potential in you back then, do you think? What was your mindset? Look, I think I did. I've often sort of pinched myself to think, here you go again, Francis, you know, you're putting yourself forward for a leadership role. And, you know, at college, I was head girl. And then, you know, and I think you sort of end up, when you've got that urgency or hunger to make a difference and that you get you gain a sense of if I, if I want this to happen I've got to do I've got to lead this and you know I hear my father's voice in the background saying if you want something done you've got to do it yourself and so I think that was always a compulsion to for me to be the first one to step over the line and volunteer to to lead at that stage, it was my classmates, and then it moved on to leadership roles and organisations as well. Do you remember limitations being set because you were a female? Uh, look, it's interesting. I've often I've thought about that a lot, and I've thought, you know, a reasonably average student at school, but I think with the interest in, in medicine and health and sciences, I often think, what stopped me from applying for medicine? And I think it was just, you know, it was never put on my radar. As I said earlier, you know, there were sort of three, it was unusual in those days for for girls to go to university. I look back and think of the sort of 30 people in my seventh form class, there were probably seven that went on to university, whereas I'd say now that's, you know, the reverse. So I, I, I suspect that, I, at the, look, to be honest, Mark, I never wasn't, certainly wasn't aware of being held back because I was a woman. And in terms of the, um, you know, the, the move into nursing and being in that sort of caring environment, did that not quite feel like you either? Did you feel like that was limited 
and and might not. Did you have that sense that it might not suit in the long term? I, I mm. certainly did. I had a sense of frustration that the you know even in those days that so we're talking way too long ago to even count. Uh, there was certainly a sense that the, that the health system wasn't serving people. And I went through the tertiary uh, system for training nurses. And through the tertiary system, it was very much about looking at the whole patient and making sure that they were comfortable uh, spiritually, mentally, physically. And I remember being quite disillusioned with the hospital system when I joined it, thinking, actually, I'm so busy running you know flat out you know looking after nine ten eleven patients at a time i don't have time to even you know give them a proper shower or bath let alone looking after their mental health or spirituality so i i guess there was a, a sense of frustration that what i had this idealistic view of how i was going to serve uh, people at, when they had their greatest need, I've had this this huge sense that I couldn't achieve what I wanted to achieve. Yeah, and you'll strike me as someone who's quite mission focused. You entered the you know pharmaceutical industry. What was that like? Because it, I suppose it's part of that that you would have felt challenging, especially in sales, or were you just enjoying the sort of you know the the ride and enjoying the sort of this new exciting adventure. Look, it was certainly, you know, there were lots of really huge financial benefits to join the pharmaceutical industry. You know, you got a beautiful car, you were paid, certainly paid a lot better than I was as a nurse. And, uh, you know, it appeared this is a really glamorous role. And once you take the gloss off all of those things, if you're really following close to your own values and you really believe in the pharmaceuticals that you're promoting, then it's a great job because you're going out there talking to doctors. One of the earliest medications that I um, sold was an antibiotic for children with ear infections. And, um, you know, even today I would say it was one of the best antibiotics available because it tasted delicious so it was easy to get kids to take it it was incredibly effective against some of those really resistant bacterias so I always had a huge sense of pride in you know making a difference not only for the little kids who were taking that antibiotic but also giving GPs a sense of uh, peace of mind because they were going to be giving prescribing a, a pharmaceutical which was not only going to work but kids were going to, wouldn't mind taking it. So I was never put in a position where I had to promote a medicine that I didn't believe in. Yeah. And, um, and, and of course, that's a choice because, you know, if I'd felt that the company I was working with at the time wasn't doing the right thing, then that wouldn't have sat well with my value system. And you talked about being, you know, g- good at sales. If you look back now, what type of salesperson were you? And would, would you be, different type of salesperson today no I look I and I think that's what makes me successful as a leader and what my team tell me is the thing that we appreciate the most out of you is your authenticity so what you see is what you get and the GPs who were in specialists who were my customers used to say France we love coming to see you you know you're not going to you're not going to spin us a line we genuinely believe that you genuinely believe in what you're telling us. So it's important to have that trust 
and that authenticity and the and the you know and aspects of vulnerability you know if a, if a GP said to me no I'm, I'm not going to prescribe that drug or if the or if the team you know say Francis I, I don't understand that then I'll say look you know fair enough you've got your reasons to stick with the medicine that you believe is the right one and and it works for you so I'm not going to challenge that any further. Was that sometimes difficult message to send back up to your bosses? It was yeah it it definitely sometimes was but I think because I was successful Mark you know you don't don't fix what ain't broke. And that confidence kind of was fueled by the 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 success like being able to like have a slightly maybe a different approach or be brave and, and actually just say look walk away from a deal because you, you know you, you know it's the right thing to that's but, right yeah are you typically an, uh, an emotional person are you like it, your approach to business do you you know do you not take it too seriously in terms of the downsides no I take what I do uh, very seriously I've always been quite achievement focused so I'm quite hard on myself and have always sort of felt, but have have always had a, an internal locus of control. So if I didn't get something over the line, I'd always look at, back at myself and say, what could I have done differently rather than, oh, well, I didn't achieve that because of this. So, you know, I've, I've always been very, very achievement focused and wanting to do the right thing. And I think that, that but this, but it, also, in, in terms of motion, I think it's more that I'm have a really high EQ. I know I can read people quite well, but also I'm trying to think of the right word. It's uh, oh, strongly empathetic. So, mm. you know, and the, and I guess in a way that makes me emotional because I can feel, you know, often when I'm hearing people, I can feel their pain. I can stand in their shoes and have an understanding of what they're going through or what they're thinking and you know and as such I find that even with this job with you know as the CEO of Cure Kids it doesn't take much for me to tear up when I'm talking about something that I'm passionate about and that's not contrived it you know sometimes it catches me by surprise. Because one of the things I struggled with sales I guess is on the you know the sort of colder sales when you're you know pushing your foot at the door and um you know, they don't necessarily want to talk to you about that your product is the is just the potential for rejection. I was I, I found the the sort of warmer sales someone coming into shop much easier. How do you did you or how do you f- deal with rejection? It sounds like you don't internalize it. It doesn't inhibit you. No, I think uh, look, I, you know, it's interesting because I've always seen myself as an extrovert. But actually, I think if I'm really honest with myself, I do find it hard to break the ice with people. You know, I would probably rather, it's interesting, you know, when you do all of that psychological testing, I, you know, I, I'd probably start, rather stay with the group of people that I know and who know me well. So that was always difficult, you know, walking into a doctor's surgery and asking to see, meet somebody that you've never met before. And even with Cure Kids, meeting a donor who you've never met before. But I'm usually very quick because I, I'm good at breaking down barriers and I'm usually very quick to find that connection. And, and so once that, once the ice is broken, then, you know, then I'm away. In terms of, you know, you moved from sales to, to sort of management and, and you ended up heading overseas. But 
In terms of the New Zealand picture and looking at the pharmaceutical industry, quite a lot changed, isn't it? New Zealand introduced um, Pharmac, and I know that was sort of had a kind of a bit of a challenge to your business model. But tell us a bit about about that. Yes, yeah, so that was um, that was it was a very it was really challenging. So that that change um, came into place when I was still in the sales team, and the model really became this whole you know all or nothing model. So you were either the drug of choice for that therapeutic category or nothing. And so so when I moved my way up and was uh, eventually became the CEO of of Pfizer, I. Uh, became a member of the board of for Medicines New Zealand, who are effectively a collective of the CEOs of the pharmaceutical industry in New Zealand. And that was amazing because you had competitors basically sitting around the table joining hands. And to be honest, that should have been done before Pharmac was introduced. And a pivotal time for me was the pharmaceutical industry has always had quite a bad name and very you know people see it as this big American driven um, you know the big pharma label and an important strategy or strategic change that Medicines New Zealand made was instead of basically trying to lobby and calling for the destruction of the pharmac model and a really important strategic change was made in that it was actually look pharmac's here to stay it does what it's mandated to do, which is keeping a lid on the pharmaceutical budget. But New Zealanders are missing out on some really important medicines, and we've seen that in the last week with the announcement of trichaftophis cystic fibrosis being funded. So all of these kids or adults with needing the new modern oncology treatments were missing out. And it basically, there was only one thing that needed to change and that the pharmaceutical budget needed to be bigger for Pharmac to be able to manage the funding of some of those drugs. So I felt we made an important shift from saying Pharmac's got to go, you know, in lobbying quite aggressively against the model to saying the model's here to stay. How do we ensure that it evolves to the point where it meets the needs of New Zealanders. Who was the main voice on that in terms of that and work suddenly, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies working together and decided to take another tap? So it was very much a collective. There was almost like a new generation of CEOs on the board. So at the time, it was the CEO of Sanofi, GlaxoSmithKline, AbbVie, or it was then Abbott, uh, Pfizer, and Roche. So they were sort of the key drivers of that um, philosophical change. And it felt to you like the right thing at the time? Like you were you were very much on board with that approach? It did, because my our thought processes were that we weren't going to get anything. We were the bad guys, so we weren't going to get any anything by being combative. But by actually sitting beside Pharmac and beside the Minister of Health and saying, look, we're New Zealanders, we're Kiwis, we are Kiwis representing a an international brand, international brands, but we want what's best for New Zealanders, as do you. And so how do we work together on providing a bespoke solution to give access to medicines in New Zealand? Mm. 
And like you say, it's it's very timely, our conversation, because just this week there's been a shift and an important drug has, has been funded. Yes. Is pharma, you know, they're, they're not doing enough, their budget isn't big enough, or is there not the right people involved in the in the approval of, of drugs? And, and, you know, is it is it just slow? Look, I think there's a, there's a distinction that most New Zealanders don't make, and that's we've got a, a, a body called MedSafe. They approve for New Zealand the safety of, of drugs for New Zealanders. So they're a, a big scientific organisation who say this drug is safe and will benefit the health of New Zealanders. And it follows the same model as the FDA and the TGA in Australia. So there's that body who who've all, might, may have already said Trikafta is a really safe drug and it will benefit this number of children in New Zealand and actually expand their life expectancy. And then you've got Pharmac who say, actually based on the, the merit of this drug, we get that it works and thank you for signing it off, MedSafe, but we don't have the budget to fund it. And they Pharmac only look at the price of the drug. They don't necessarily look at the the downstream impact of not providing this medicine. So hospitalisation, keeping patients out of the doctor's surgery, their financial contribution to society because the person's too ill to work. So their, their, their primary mandate is living within the pharmaceutical budget. So either that mandate has to change and so that they're responsible for all of those downstream costs or they need a, a bigger budget, which comes from the Ministry of Health. But I think what most people see is that if Pharmac hasn't approved a drug, then it mustn't be safe. But the safety question is already is already answered by a completely independent unit in the in the Ministry of Health. And your move from pharmaceutical to the non-profit, how, how did that come about? Like, must have been a pretty significant decision for you to step away? It absolutely was. So I think there were sort of two personal, there were two drivers really. One was personal and the other one was from a, how am I going to have an impact on on the health of New Zealanders? So the first one was I'd been overseas, my daughters were adults and I wanted to come back to New Zealand because I thought actually they're going to start sort of spreading their wings and it'd be nice for me to have a home base in New Zealand so that when they do their travelling, ironically, nobody ever saw the um, pandemic storming down the track that um, that, I, that you know that I would be in New Zealand. Um, secondly, I'd got to the point in time where in my career where I would have had the opportunity to either potentially go up to New York to where the head office was or country management or another co- country management role. And I thought it was an escalator that I was ready to step off. And I, I guess you have one of those moments in life where you think, have I made a difference? How can I make a difference? And what are the parts of my current role and past roles that have really meant that I jump out of bed in the morning? And I thought, well, it's got to be health because that's just my sweet spot. And I know that I've been a really effective leader over many years. So a leadership role where I can inspire others, hopefully, you know, would be ideal. And then in the back of my mind, I thought, actually, 
when you look at the both of those things from a almost a vocational perspective, then the not for profit is a is a natural progression. And I was fortunate enough to know that Pfizer in New Zealand was one it was a huge supporter of Cure Kids in its uh, heyday. And so I was very familiar with Cure Kids. And so when I reached out to my networks and said, look, this is what I'm thinking. I'm coming back to New Zealand. If anything comes up, let me know. And coincidentally, the CEO of Cure Kids had just resigned. So I felt there was a huge element of serendipity there, Mark. Yeah, and you, your ideal skills and experience for the for the role. Was, was it plain sailing getting the role? And, and what did you find when you walked into um, Cure Kids? It definitely wasn't plain sailing. I the, They hadn't advertised the role. There was an, an acting CEO role at the time who was you know, had given been given a strong indication that she would um, take up the CEO role. Um, and so it hadn't been advertised for that reason. And so what I did was, I didn't know that at the time. And so I rang the previous CE and said, you know, what's happening? And she said, oh, I think it's, um, I think it'll, I don't think it'll be available. Um, and so I emailed the chair of the board and said, look, you don't know who I am, but this role sounds perfect and sent him my CV and he emailed me back and he said, Francis, we'd love to meet you. So, and at that stage I was sitting up in Hong Kong. He said, when are you back in New Zealand? And I said, September. And he said, let's meet. So they then felt that out of fairness, they needed to follow a, the board chair of the board felt that they needed to you know, to be fair and transparent. And so they ran a competitive recruitment process and advertised the role. So it went from a number of candidates and then I was finally selected for the role, which I was so thrilled about. It wasn't an easy transition. There was a lot of cynicism from the team about this commercial person I think their perception was I was this big international <laughs> uh, bigwig who was going to come in and tell people how to fundraise. There was a scepticism around the fact that I didn't have any fundraising experience. Um, and so it was, you know, I had to really prove myself to the team before I think they gave me any um, credibility. Uh, yeah. So, so it, was an inter- it was an interesting journey. Because there's scarcity in nonprofits, you know, there's a lack of resources. Was that the one thing that you saw? Absolutely. So one of the funny things, or one of the, it was actually quite empowering because I thought, well, if I want to do anything here, I've got to do it myself. You know, you come from a big international organisation, you've got HR departments, you've got finance departments, you know, you've got big international procurement departments. So it was like, okay, well, I think we should move offices because we're paying too much rent. And you know, if that was the Pfizer scenario, I would have had to go up to New York to ask for, you know, the procurement to apply to the procurement team. But it was like, actually, no, I've got to do this myself. So, and I can do it myself. And all I have to do is put a proposal up to the board and get it approved. So I felt there was this incredible liberation from red tape. It was the first experience I'd had reporting to an actual board. So that was, that was interesting. That was a learning curve for me. Uh, the expectation of a board is quite different to the expectation of a vice president or, a, you know, a regional director. So, so that was a learning curve for me. I also felt that it was interesting to, to get a very 
strong view of the sorts of people that were attracted to work for charities uh, because you certainly don't do it for for the financial reward no you know it ha- you, there has to be an element a vocational element to it and with that one of the things that I was a steep learning curve for me was that often people who work within charities have had some sort of trauma or experience which is what drives them to work for a charity and you know they they don't want this to happen to anybody else and and with that it does mean that you're dealing sometimes with some quite complex emotions and unexpected behaviors just through the historical trauma and and life experience that sometimes translates into not the best behaviour in terms of team dynamics. Yeah, because you're used to a very professional environment where it's all about the the work and all, all all about getting the job done. Was that the the biggest surprise, or that was a that was sort of the biggest challenge initially? Was you know the possibility that someone might bring their baggage to work and that might be sat alongside their professional work as well? Absolutely, that was the, that was probably the biggest surprise for me was. The fact that I, you know, everybody talked about us having a great culture, um, and I kept thinking this isn't a great culture. <laughs> so, and I'd worked in some incredible cultures. You know, the New Zealand business used to win the international sort of culture awards in in Pfizer. So we've always had this wonderful sort of collaboration, and uh, and so it, I found it. I kept thinking there's something missing here. I, you know, everybody talks about that we've got a great culture. And what I discovered after doing a couple of sort of cultural surveys uh, to just really get to the nitty gritty of what was driving some of the behaviours, what I discovered was that the glue or what people saw as a great culture was actually the fact that everybody who was at CureKids believed in its purpose. So on a macro level, everybody believed what we were doing. Everybody was passionate about what we were doing. But then underneath that purpose, there was a lot of dysfunction. And I mm. initially, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I thought maybe it's me. Maybe, you know, I've had this closeted, closeted life in, in big corporates where we've got these wraparound services and maybe, maybe, maybe it's me. But I had some really great insights from an industrial psychologist who said, no, it's not you, Francis. It's the nature of, often the nature of people that work in charities and you can't change that. So how did you break it? Like, what did you do? Do you remember something quite intentional that you thought, right, because you you talked about doing some surveys and you got that first hundred days where you just, you're just listening and you're watching. And But do you remember a turning point? Yes. So we ran the first cultural survey and everybody was very suspicious of it. And so we didn't get a lot of honesty. There was some quite, that I think that was where, where we established that everybody w- agreed what our purpose was and everybody was on the same page. But we ju- that survey the first time really just skimmed the surface. And then we ran it again six months later. And I think people gained a greater degree of comfort in the first survey because they saw that it absolutely was confidential and that all their feedback, you know, we were able to demonstrate the fact that there was a lot of confidentiality. So in the second survey, people just let loose. And it was, to be honest, it was just horrific, some of the feedback. You know, there was 
accusations of bullying, there were clear examples of, you know, really inappropriate behaviours, you know, which, you know, all going on behind everybody's backs. And so, and, you know, all roads pointed to Rome. And I was also conscious of the fact that from a, an organisational perspective, we were putting a lot of effort into certain areas of fundraising, which we, where we just weren't getting the return on income, whereas the areas where we were getting fabulous donations and, and great funding, we weren't resourcing. So basically, I had an opportunity to do a significant strategic change in the way we were doing things and basically our headcount dropped from 24 to 16 by doing that, that uh, quite a big strategic change. And with that, we were able to carve at least half a million dollars worth of costs. It sounds incredibly mercenary, but at this stage, our, our balance between our income and our expenses was really needed urgent attention. And I couldn't hand on heart go to donors and say, actually, this huge percentage of your donation is going towards operating costs. Mm. So I couldn't live with that anymore. And being really unpopular, so I'm sure you weren't, you know, flavour of the month. Not at all. And I'm I probably still to this day, Mark, there's targets on, on my back. But I felt, you know, ethically I had to do something. And, mm. and, and the board were aware that there was something not quite right. And when I first started, they said to me, Francis, we need a good CEO to come in and, and sort this out because it's we're not in a good financial position and it's got to change or else we're going to have to shut this down. And so in my mind, I kept thinking, you know, morally I have to do this and it was the right thing to do because overnight we cut half a million dollars of expenses off our, our, our bottom line and our income didn't change. Mm. So... You know, by reducing the headcount, reducing the expenses. Actually, the other thing we did was we just said events aren't working for us anymore. We were running some really major expensive events like the Great Adventure Race, the $10 Challenge, the Ticket to Hope. And they were big, labour-intensive events to arrange. And I'd like to think that I had the strategic foresight of understanding that a pandemic was storming down the track. But that actually really helped us last year or in the last two years because previously a lot of our income had been reliant on events. And if we hadn't made that change uh, three or four years ago, then we would have been in a much different position over the last two years. Yeah, but also never easy as the leader going through change. And I think, you know, for, for non-profits, business as usual is challenging, but throw in some change is, is really, I mean, fundamental to being able to do that is a strong, why are you doing it? And you had that and also your board backing you? Yes. Yeah. The board support was phenomenal. You know, I went to them with quite a, quite an audacious proposal about cutting, cutting things out of our operational plans that had a lot of history attached to them. You know, the the ticket to hope is a was a you know a, a much loved campaign. Mm. So you know, having their support, basically, you know, otherwise my hands would have been tied. So having their support and their backup for me to follow through with these processes really helped me. And did you have support at home? So those really dark days when you're coming home and you know people have got 
issues with you and and you're not popular and there's a big you know change is hard right change is super hard but did you have that support at home I did so I was very fortunate I mean I've got two beautiful daughters I, I mean I've been blessed with two very healthy children which makes me feel you know just so lucky and it helps me you know be even more passionate about what I'm doing now so two amazing adult daughters who are in their well in the early 30s now and so they were just my rock so yeah incredible and your hope for Cure Kids in the future like you're looking forward and thinking what this organization is going to do how it's going to make a difference so I would love to see, at the moment we've got this horrific stat of 40,000 children a year are being admitted to hospital for completely preventable illnesses, things like respiratory infections, skin infections, which is so preventable at primary care level, and, and dental decay. And, and then when you layer on things like the, the adolescent mental health pandemic that we've got at the moment, um, the terrible incidence of rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease, I would just love to see New Zealand child health stats just turn around so that we don't have to be ashamed of the statistics that we've got. And I think the only way that we can do that is by really addressing the core issues that prevent our children from having living healthy lives with bright futures. And Cure Kids working with some of those other bodies like the Children's Commission, like the Child Poverty Action Group, like the government, to to really hold hands and collaborate on on those things which are going to make a material difference to the lives of our tamariki. And you've been in the role seven years, and it sounds like to make all of what you just described happen, you need to be a bit of an activist. You need to be out there talking to people, challenging people. You excited about the future for yourself you're going to be doing this for another five years at least at least so I think you've got it you've got you know again it's carks back to you know being a 17 year old and being head girl of your secondary school it's somebody has to step forward and and take the leadership and be the voice and I think with the beautiful researchers and the bright minds that we've got surrounding Cure Kids as an organization we're the experts on child health and you know, if we don't speak, who will? Francis Bend, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.